You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. There's lots of fun coming your way this weekend on U62. First, slam your way to health as you stay fit with Mike and Spike. Next, everybody's favorite, Chef Bernie invites you to go bowling for burgers. Sunday, be a part of the excitement as we premiere our dazzling new game show, Strip Solitaire. And then, join us for some hilarious fun on the all-new Practical Jokes and Bloopers. And you won't want to miss Celebrity Mud Wrestling with this week's special guest, Mikhail Gorbachev. It's a whole new weekend on U62, the reason television was invented. Be there! Channel 62 has the lowest ratings in the history of television. What they need is a new station manager. No, not him. Forget it. No way. A man of action. Ah! A man of courage. A man of vision. What's your name? Billy. Billy what? What they get is a man so desperate, he'll put anyone on the air. Hey, Stanley. Yeah, George. How would you like your own TV show? Okay. You get the drink from the fire hose! Okay, you ready? Yeah! Open wide! He's Conan, the librarian. Today we're teaching poodles how to fly. We beat up the networks. George Newman, he starts where the others stop. We're the number one station in town. Pictures presents Weird Al Yankovic in UHF, the movie. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. With me this week is Mr. Skiz Sizzik. Supplies. Also with us this week is Mr. Cecil Trachtenberg. A Twinkie Wiener Sandwich. This week... We're talking about the 1989 film UHF. The film stars Weird Al Yankovic in his first leading role. He plays George Newman, a ne'er-do-well who can't hold down a job until his uncle lets him run a UHF channel that he won in a card game. There, George revitalizes the floundering U-62 with an interesting blend of original programming. Cecil, when was the first time you saw UHF, and what did you think, sir? I saw it uh, on video sometime during the 90s. I'd say probably early to mid-90s, and I absolutely loved it because I was a big fan of Weird Al when I was growing up, and I still like him. I think that uh, he's genuinely funny. He's just a goofy guy, and I know like the whole parody genre kind of gets crap, but I think that he does genuinely – interesting and funny parodies and his band is really talented so they do very good mock-ups of whatever songs they're doing so i've always kind of dug his stuff and seeing a movie of just him doing all these like wacky sketches and things that were all spoofs on various uh things that were popular either at the time or things that were popular over the years i thought it really worked Uh, i know a lot of people complained about how there was a lack of plot but i thought that there was just enough plot to keep things going and to keep the uh, parodies stitched together. And really, I mean, if you were to do something with Weird Al, how could it not be about parodies? It wouldn't make sense uh, to have his first outing be something different. And I think it's funny. Um, I just did a video on it not that long ago. And I think that it still holds up. It's still funny. It's still entertaining. And it's definitely a one of a kind movie. How about you, Skiz? 
Uh, well, I was a huge Weird Al fan from the first album. So when uh, word got out that he was making a movie, I entered a couple contests to be in it and didn't win any of them. But I did get to meet him and get his autograph and get my picture taken with him. So I actually had the photo blown up and framed and I mailed it to him with a letter saying, I really want to be in this movie and never heard back from him. So I couldn't wait for the movie to come out just to see it. And, you know, disappointed that I wasn't in it. It was still a lot of fun to see. I saw this one theatrically with my friend Leon. We saw it at the Ford Tell Theater here in uh, Dearborn, Michigan. And I think we were maybe the only two people in the theater to see it. Uh, apparently it didn't run for very long, but we managed to make it out and managed to see it. I've never met Weird Al. I've always wanted to, and I've always wanted to um, – you know, uh, interview him for the show or for whatever. I, I haven't been able to do that, but I, my little claim to fame is that after the movie came out, there was a contest, or maybe it was right as the movie came out, for the uh, Close Personal Friends of Al fan club, and it was to answer a couple questions about the film, I guess to prove that you actually saw it, mail that in, and then one lucky winner at random, or maybe more, it's been a few years, uh, would win a prize, and a few months later, here's this huge package at my door. I have no idea what it is. I al almost forgot that I even entered this contest because I just never won stuff like that. And it was a standee from the film, a autographed copy of the soundtrack, picture of Al and a couple other doodads. And so I kept that for a lot of years, even though the standee was pretty unwieldy. And uh, I did keep the picture of Michael Richards that says, Stanley Spadowski says with like, nothing uh you know just a, a picture of his face <laughs> <laughs> I, I had that standee too and in fact i bet at my parents basement to this day there are still parts of it like hanging out behind shelves and stuff i remember there were like springs with like little foam balls that i think attached to al's head and all this stuff and yeah i was a big fan of Weird Al from the very first album. I remember having to special order it from a uh, record store down in Wyandotte, and they looked at me like I was pretty crazy, like trying to tell them about this guy Weird Al Yankovic, who I I think I'd seen a video one night late at night or something, and of course they're like, well, we know of Frank Yankovic, the accordion player, and I was like, well, this guy plays accordion, but he's not that guy, and I think he spelled his name a little bit differently, so finally I was able to get a special order of the self-titled album that came in and i've been a fan pretty much ever since though i have to say i didn't rush out over the last few albums but definitely have put those in my library as they've come out and even still try to pick them up on cd if i can the thing with uh uhf was uh it was put out by orion and it was the highest tested film, like when they when they tested it for uh, test audiences, and it was the highest tested film since RoboCop. And RoboCop was Orion's last like huge movie. So they were expecting UHF to be their next big hit. So that's probably why they had, uh, you know, the standees and everything. They probably were ready to, you know, have them put all over uh, the country and have UHF to be this massive hit. And it ended up only being in theaters for two weeks before it got yanked. And, uh, well, yank Odvich. Or, uh, <laughs> but, uh it, uh, it was a shame because it was very creative, and uh, I guess that uh, audiences just really weren't ready for it or weren't really into it at the time. Audiences and critics. 
critics in general are kind of uh, hot and cold on comedies because uh, sometimes there'll, there'll be a comedy that comes out and it's the most unfunny pile of garbage I've ever seen and it gets critical acclaim like uh, Sideways. I positively hate that movie. I think it's one of the worst movies ever made and yet it's this critically acclaimed hilarious movie and then UHF, a movie that, uh, I, yeah, I mean it is to a certain degree juvenile humor but sue me. That shit's funny. I was reading in the uh, the, the one Weird Al book that the, the summer that UHF came out, and I remember I had a, my best friend was working in a movie theater, so I was there all the time watching movies. And I do remember that that was, you know, it, it was up against a Batman movie, a Lethal Weapon movie, and a Ghostbusters movie. And, of course, all of those movies have kind of lived on more in, in the public's uh, memory than, than UHF has. UHF, though, I think is probably still a very important movie to all Weird Al fans, so it's probably the only one that's a cult film from that summer. It came out during one of the best summers in movie history. Yeah, because it was, uh, yeah, it was Ghostbusters 2, uh, Lethal Weapon 2, I believe, Batman. It was just, like you said, it was this laundry list of just amazing films. Weekend at Bernie's, and it ended up opening, memory serves, I think it opened in like 11th place or something. But the 10 movies above it were all movies that are like still known and still like very big today. Yeah, I remember talking on the Batman Returns episode about the hype for Batman and just that you couldn't go anywhere without seeing those posters and just them drilling the date of release into your head and looking at the date that this was released, which was just a few weeks after Batman came out, and that was just trouncing everything at the box office. I remember going to see ghostbusters 2 the weekend it opened hating it and sneaking into batman to see that a second time thinking that the theater basically owed me money after having to sit through ghostbusters 2 and i i I still feel pretty good about that today boo are you ghostbusters 2 fan yes i love ghostbusters 2 you have not been watching my videos good sir where did you find this guy me i thought you hired him that was one of those videos that I did where uh, I had all these people saying, oh, my God, you're so right. Ghostbusters 2 is completely underrated. Uh, I like it more than Ghostbusters 1. And then you have the this is the worst movie ever made. This sucks. <laughs> so it is a very, very down the middle movie. Well, let's talk about UHF because we can all agree on that one being a fantastic film. You know, I outlined the uh, plot, what it is uh, at the beginning a little bit as far as, you know, Al having a series of jobs, he and his buddy Bob going through a series of jobs, and Weird Al pretty much, uh, the George Newman character, I should say, getting them fired from pretty much everything, and them being so good of friends, they live together, they're basically you know inseparable, and uh, Bob, who's played by David Bowe, who pretty much shows up in commercials still these days, I see him all the time when I am watching just regular television, I forget to fast forward through a commercial, there's David Bowe looking at me. So they uh, take over this UHF channel, which, Cecil, I hope you are of age to even know what UHF is. Yeah, I do remember what uh, UHF is. It was still around when uh, I was young, and not for tre- – well, it, it's so weird because over the years we've kind of become so used to uh, – uh, having everything you know on the internet and being able to kind of go right to that and having cable 
and TiVo and all that. It's it's kind of made this weird thing where I remember a time when we used to have to, you know, turn the dial on the television, but it seems like so long ago. But really, it wasn't that long ago, but I guess it was long enough ago. But yeah, I remember, you know, UHF. I used to watch uh, Kung Fu Theater on uh, Channel 48 out here. My one problem with the story is that, you know, it's a UHF station that's like failing. But in my experience, the UHF stations were what all the kids were watching. Like that's that's where all the toy commercials were and uh, all the monster movies and all the old reruns. So to think that there would be a UHF station somewhere, which, you know, maybe not number one in the ratings, and maybe not completely raking in the cash, but failing just was it was kind of hard to imagine at that time. Yeah, we actually had a Channel 62 here in Detroit, and actually we still do. It got taken over by CBS years ago as they were kind of making that switch from UHF to VHF to cable. It was kind of a a strange time. But yeah, our Channel 62 was just the strangest programming because it was Arab Voice of Detroit. It was religious programming, and it was kung fu movies and Bullwinkle. So pretty much, you know, that that was the the place to go for all those fantastic cultural touchstones. So I, I was a big fan of 62, especially on Sunday mornings for those kung fu films. Hello, I'm Reverend James Cleveland, and I'm here to tell you to be sure and keep your dial right here on WGPR-TV 62. Especially on Sundays when TV 62 presents some of the finest religious broadcasting available. WGPR's call letters stand for where God's presence radiates. And all day Sunday is a wonderful religious experience. God bless you. This does kind of capture that devil may care kind of thing but as far as i remember there was never other than horror hosts which i guess you could kind of stretch and say that that was original programming we didn't have very much original programming at all on these uhf channels yeah i think horror hosts and then like an after like here in baltimore which our station wasn't even i don't think it was actually in baltimore i think it was closer to dc you know we had horror hosts but then we also had an afternoon captain chesapeake that uh, came on in between Gilligan's Island and Batman and Hogan's Heroes and told jokes and had contests. So George takes over the station and brings his uh, unique sense of humor to the the ongoings. And I love that we don't really waste a whole lot of time to introduce us to some of the um, the outrageous characters that are in his life. I mean, we already have Bob that we talked about, who is pretty much George's straight man through this. And interestingly enough, George's girlfriend is kind of his straight man, too, which is odd because his girlfriend, Terry, is played by Victoria Jackson, who at the time, I this was post-Saturday Night Live, and I remember her being really good when she was on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, I was actually surprised re-watching the film, how good she is, and, and attractive, too. Like, I, I never really thought of her as being attractive, and I especially don't think that now because her reputation is so uh, unappealing <laughs> these days. <laughs> Yeah, I've got in my notes here, you know, is there a UHF curse just between her and Michael Richards? It's just like, man, what happened to these people? I mean, Michael Richards only had like the one incident as far as I know. I mean, maybe other stuff has happened after that whole thing. But 
Victoria Jackson just went off the deep end and reading her Twitter feed or her website and stuff is just a look into loony land, especially as we get, you know, hotter into like the political season, she just goes off and it is so not funny. And you know that she's not parroting something because she's now like starring in Christian movies and stuff. And it's just like, Oh man, what happened to you? Did you, what was, what was that moment that took you from where you were to what you are now? What did Dennis Miller tell her? Yeah. He's kind of off his rocker now too, isn't <laughs> yeah, he? Yeah, that's what uh, I hear. Uh, I, well, he's always kind of been a little like, uh, not, not nutsy, like how uh, Victoria Jackson went, but he's always kind of been, um, smug. I, I mean, I've, I've liked him over the years. He's never really done anything particularly jerky that I know of, but he always has been a little bit, uh, like a, feeling like he's a few levels above everybody else. That's kind of the impression that I get. Not, not disliking. Like I like, uh, you know, uh, him in like Bordello of blood and stuff, uh, where he's really just, they, they went, okay, we didn't write anything for you. We want you to ad lib this entire movie. And he's like, all right, I got this. Like, I kind of dig that. But, um, yeah, Victoria Jackson just, uh, she seemed so sweet, especially in this movie. She seems like a really just cool, like, you know, girlfriend. And uh, she didn't she she loved George. It's just that he constantly kept screwing up and uh, she was kind of had had it. And she seemed really sweet. And then you see uh, what she's become is just kind of out of her mind. And that's sad. It's really sad. I think Obama is a communist, and my husband said, don't use that word, say radical or Marxist, but, um, you know, Karl Marx wrote the book, The Communist Manifesto, so I don't see why people are afraid to say the word communist, because I've done a lot of research, and I read the book 1984 by George Orwell twice, and um, I was walking through the airport, and every magazine had Obama's picture on it, every one. And I turn on the TV and every channel had him on it. I like what she says on the DVD extras where she's talking about Weird Al and how uh, she looked into his eyes and he's just like a genuinely sweet and nice person and nobody has broken his heart yet. So he doesn't have any kind of negativity in his soul. And it was just sort of like, what an interesting observation for, I, I thought that the two of them may have been involved with each other at one point. I don't know if that was rumor or not, but. Maybe she was the one that broke his heart. Maybe he's the one that sent her over the edge. That's yeah, it's possible. It was the uh, the ticket sales of, of UHF. She's, she's like, oh, this was going to be my big break after Saturday Night Live, and oh no, <laughs> she pinned all of her hopes to this. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's weird to hear her. Uh, I've seen her on some news programs, and she's she's going off on stuff, but she's still got that like Mickey Mouse voice. So it's like really, it's it's like, is this is this for real? Like. Sometimes I know a guy and a woman who are lesbian and a gay and they married and they're going to have babies now. If you like funny voices, this movie is for you because between her and then Fran Drescher as Pamela Finkelstein, I mean, you've got some prime voices here. And then to read that uh, Jennifer Tilly had been up for the Terry role, <laughs> I was just like, he's looking for somebody with a really interesting voice. There's other interesting voices. I mean, e- Emo Phillips. Oh, Emo was was terrific in that. Actually, it's kind of funny that uh, going on that angle that he didn't bring in uh, Judy Tenuta, too, because I know Judy Tenuta and Emo Phillips were dating at the time. Uh, You know, I don't know how, you know, about uh, whether or not that it was even a thing, but she 
having her in there, although there was a ton of edited scenes. They, uh, I mean, the, I think the original cut of the movie was like three hours long or something. And they were like, all right, we have to really cut this thing down because it was just so many skits and all kinds of stuff. So who knows? Maybe she, maybe somewhere there exists uh, some additional footage with some other weird voice people in there. Yeah, I was looking for Julie Brown myself. I thought that they that he would kind of have her on there because those two were, I seem to remember, pretty popular around the same time. And those two really helped MTV quite a bit. I mean, Weird Al and MTV, I know everybody points to Michael Jackson as being, you know, the guy who really helped push MTV into the mainstream. And there was the whole backlash against playing black artists and yada, yada, yada. You know, there's a Tons of stuff out there if you want to read about that, the I Want My MTV book and all this kind of stuff. But for me, Weird Al really helped cement so much of MTV, and that was really where I fell in love with MTV was those parody videos and him being able to, to put those out and, uh, you know, then Dr. Demento kind of being able to play out, you know, he's, it almost seemed like he was paying back Dr. Demento by Dr. Demento having a show every once in a while on MTV. And, I mean, it if you are a Weird Al fan, the late 80s, the mid to late 80s were a great time to be alive. I mean, I, I suppose now still is, but when there were fewer channels and he was on quite often, it was fantastic to be able to have him in your living room as often as he was. And they did uh, Al TV a few times where he would just take over the channel and they would run his music videos alongside of like other videos that he picked so that was like great because uh, his videos were always really funny parodies of whatever was, you know, the popular songs at the time. And they were always just humongous videos. They always did really well. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think that uh, I mean, Michael Jackson with Thriller and all that definitely was probably the the most monumental thing that they did that really broke them. But having Weird Al there, it was just a consistently good thing. Like when I would tune in to MTV, I was, you know, I wanted to see Weird Al videos. You know, I didn't care about a lot of the other stuff. I just wanted to see his stuff. And uh, thankfully, they uh, they used to run it fairly often. Actually, I think one of the first things I ever saw on MTV was uh, the video for Ricky when, when MTV was still brand new. And uh, I didn't have it, but I had a girlfriend who did. That record was already a couple years old at that point, I want to say. And uh, But the, the, the novelty of music videos and then the further novelty of novelty music videos was just blowing my mind. Like, man, there's so much potential here. Yeah, you know, I was probably wrong when I just said that that record came out a couple years earlier. I'm confusing it with uh, it was a, an acoustic version of my Bologna that was getting airplay uh, <laughs> here in Baltimore. And I was thinking that the album and that came out at the same time, but that, that actually came out a few years before the album. So, yeah, that was back on the Dr. Demento show, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it's nice, you know, Dr. Demento, he, I thought for sure he would have a bigger role in the movie, but he just shows up in the like in the audience, and then they kind of spotlight him later on with Stanley shooting the, uh, the whipped cream into his mouth. But I was so glad that he was there, because for a long time, you know, it was always like spot the cameo of Dr. Demento in those videos, whether he was a picture on the wall or just, you know, showing up in the background someplace. It was always nice that Al kind of, you know, was, was giving him props. Yeah. It's really cool because it's like seriously, Al 
owes his career to Dr. Demeno and like he's never forgotten that because there are a lot of actors and actresses and whatnot that will uh, they'll have some somebody will give them, a, you know, their first shot. And then, you know, 20 years later, after they won an Oscar, it's like, oh, yeah, I was in that piece of crap movie. It's like, well, you owe this person your career, you know, regardless of what you like. And I mean, now now Al was a fan of Dr. Demeno and he did, you know, play his music. So it's kind of a different thing. But the simple fact that he still continues to give him props and continues to like put him in stuff it just shows like that he's really just he's a genuinely good guy who understands his roots we've talked a little bit about terry a little bit about george a little bit about bob but really so much of the heart of this movie is stanley spadowski i mean i really don't think you can underestimate what michael richards brings to the film i mean he's the guy who basically saves channel 62 and really his his comedy in this movie is just amazing i mean you know people are familiar of course with him as cosmo kramer bursting into jerry's apartment and stuff but the level of physical comedy that he brings to the role of stanley spadowski and the voice and the teeth and all that kind of stuff he just oh man he he is just spot on in this film. It's, it's funny that these days he's always referred to as Michael Richards from Seinfeld, but when uh, UHF came out, he was Michael Richards from Fridays. And yeah, I think a lot of people have even forgotten that Fridays existed. Right, and he was, I always thought he was one of the better cast members on there because he could do so many weird and crazy, like physical comedy and voices and faces. I mean, he was just, he was hilarious on that show. Yeah, he had a pretty darn good career before he ever touched Seinfeld. I mean, he was, you know, even on like uh, St. Elsewhere and stuff. I mean, he had a, a, a pretty good thing going for himself. Of course, it was Seinfeld that really, you know, put him into the popular culture. But yeah, he was uh, he was one of those guys where you know you're watching Problem Child or um, Whoops Apocalypse or something, and it's just like, oh hey, there's Michael Richards. But God, yeah, Stanley Spadowski. You just I can't say enough about how much I love him in the film and just that level of stupidity that he plays so well. It's like to me, he's he is like Patrick Starr, like you know, so many years before SpongeBob. You know, he just plays stupid so well, and especially his love of his mop and everything. It it just. Uh, Man, he still just manages to crack me up. Even just rewatching the film yesterday, I was like, "Oh God, he is so good." The scene where he's uh, his mop is taken away and he's fired, and he gets kind of tangled up trying to leave. He gets tangled up in the door, <laughs> and, he, and he thinks he's on the other side of the door. Still cracks me up every time I see it. And just his reactions when he sees R.J. Fletcher, the Kevin McCarthy <laughs> character, it just sometimes so like do that startled, like, you know, he'll throw his head back and everything. I'm, I'm sitting over here doing it, you know, which isn't really very effective on a podcast, but yeah, just to, to see that reaction that he does. And when he, uh, when George hires him and he uh, is so happy that he still gets to be the janitor when he gets his own TV show. He ad-libbed so much of that, which they even said uh, they had, 
lines of dialogue written for him, but they said the majority of the time what he ended up just coming up with off the cuff it was better than what they wrote. And that's kind of the brilliance of it. It's why his character is so memorable and his expressions. And like you said, with, uh, you know, he's he's going out of the office and he doesn't realize that he's still in the office and them stealing his mop, mop from him. And it's like it's like, a, you know, somebody stealing his child. You know, you know, and he's holding on to it. And, you know, yeah, it's just so, so funny. Like he really, really helps to sell that movie. I mean, the movie's already funny, but he makes it like just 10 times better. And in a world where like there's stunt casting as far as, you know, like putting Robert Vaughn in basketball, which I love basketball, but just like Robert Vaughn in basketball seems like a, a comparison that I can make with UHF and Kevin McCarthy, but Kevin McCarthy just brings it. He brings everything to this role. He is just amazing. And he's such a, a, an, an incredible uh, antagonist in this film. Just the way he explodes all the time. It's just wonderful, wonderful role for him. What is this piece of crap? I thought I told you I wanted a Rolex! A Rolex! And the one scene when uh, uh, Weird Al walks in and he's like, hey, RJ. And like everyone just stops because they're like, <laughs> oh, crap. You know, and then he just stands there and just completely berates him. And yeah, he's just an amazing, like uh, the, the perfect villain for this movie. Like he's so over the top evil but it, it works, you know, it doesn't it doesn't go into a level of cartoonish. It just it just somehow stays like perfect, you know, with this whole, uh, you know, this town is a festering pile of dog vomit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's just great. The, the look in his eyes and the uh, the times when he smiles and you think, OK, he's being nice. And you realize that there's this evil behind that smile before Jim Carrey was ever cast to play the Grinch. I thought Kevin McCarthy would have been a really great choice for a live action Grinch. Yeah. Even those quiet moments when he's given it to, uh, to Pamela Finkelstein, you know, I don't know how many times I've told those guys not to call chicks broads, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and his interaction with John Paragon. I love that as well. John Paragon is just that simpering son of his and, Oh man, Paragon, I talked about him in the Elvira episode, just how much I really appreciate that guy. And he brings so much to this role as well, especially those moments where he is laughing at his father's jokes. But then, of course, my favorite moment is... uh, We're losing credibility in the market. And why? Because of some fly-by-night UHF station! A UHF station! This is an embarrassment, a disgrace. What do you think R.J. Fletcher Sr. would be saying if he were alive today? Help, let me out of this box. I can't breathe in here. Help, let me out. And the the one I couldn't get over, because growing up as a child of the 80s, you know, there, uh, there was this whole move to talking about the soap operas and there was the romance of Luke and Laura and the big wedding and all this kind of stuff. It was, you know, you really, I don't know if people would understand that daytime dramas were really hot for a while there. And the guy who was the hottest guy was the guy that played Luke, Anthony Geary. And it literally took me probably five, six years before I made the connection between 
Anthony Geary as Luke from General Hospital and Anthony Geary as Philo from UHF. I had no idea that those were the same guys. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. You know, Luke, this dashing guy with this horrible, like, Jerry Curl white guy haircut and stuff versus Philo as, you know, the the mad scientist. Really, I couldn't picture that these were the same guys. And just that he had that much of a sense of humor and that he would play that role just felt so out of character for him, you know, to me. And it really just made me appreciate what Anthony Geary could do. I didn't realize they were the same person until you just said this. Wow. There you go. Yeah, me, me neither, actually. Because I remember uh, my my mother watched uh, General Hospital, and I remember the whole oh the Luke and Laura, and I'm like oh my god Luke was Philo, holy crap! <laughs> I know it's crazy, right? Okay, I'm glad you guys are experiencing what experiencing what I experienced when I found out. I was like, that's the same guy. Like now, when you go back and you rewatch it, and you'll be like, okay, yeah, I guess I can see that. I mean, he looks so much older, of course, with the white hair and the beard and everything. But yeah, that's the same guy, kind of playing this almost like Laszlo from Real Genius type role. And I found it interesting that they were offering that to Joel Hodgson for a while, which would have just been such a, an interesting take on it. I mean, I think that Anthony Geary did a fantastic job, but this whole idea of Joel Hodgson, people don't seem to realize that before MST3K, he actually did have a little bit of a career going, and that he was to the point where they could offer him this, this role, I was like, oh, that that's pretty neat. And he actually turned it down because of Mystery Science Theater. He was uh, he was in like the beginning stages of getting that together, and uh, like the timing just wouldn't line up right. So it was like he had to turn it down because uh, he was working on Mystery Science Theater. So it is weird where it's like because uh, Anthony Geary did a great job in the role, and there's always those you know times when you hear, oh well, this actor would have been in this part. You think to yourself, you're like. Well, would would it have been, you know, how would it have been? How would it have affected things? Like, I could imagine, like, what if he was in this movie and then the movie ended up being a really big hit and then there wouldn't be a mystery science theater or something like that, right. you know? Like, it's it's just very odd. You, you always think of those little, uh, the, the alternate universe stuff. And, you know, Joe Hodgson was known back in the day as being prop comic, but more than that, just like these interesting inventions, you know, that whole idea of the invention exchange came pretty much right from his act a lot of times. And I wonder if Philo would have had more quote unquote wacky uh, inventions in that role, if that's what Joel would have brought to it. But I think that Philo, what he does is absolutely fine. And he's kind of like the the heart of the station, you know, he's like the eyes and ears of this TV station, which works out well and he's an alien oops spoiler yeah <laughs> spoiler. although i could also see joel being an i actually i think joel might be an alien george has this interesting cast of characters that he interacts with and it kind of reminds me we spoke a, a few weeks ago on the podcast about ed wood and the way that in that film it's this 
family of lovable losers, you know, that are all brought around this one guy. And this movie seems to have a lot of similarities to me as far as, you know, George being at the center and having all of these kind of interesting people that all come together at the station. I mean, we didn't even talk about Billy Barty as the cameraman and just uh, noodles and, and just how, of course, he has to shoot everything from a very low angle. So he makes one of the most interesting news uh, photographers that, that is around. And, you know, there's just so many interesting characters that are in this universe of George. And that, I think, is why it works for me, is that it, it is this, like, group of lovable losers, you know, that you, and it's all people that I want to know more, you know, like I would like to know more about Cooney who's played by Getty Watanabe. And these are the kind of people I would like to, to hang out with and, and be around. The sort of uh, large African-American cameraman who, yes, I don't think it's a, a single line in the entire film. He just does like facial expressions. Right. But they're great facial expressions. <laughs> like yeah. he's eating a sandwich and like he just sits there and like the lettuce falls out of the sandwich. <laughs> oh, mean, and do, oh, doesn't he do the um the um the the, the bloopers and practical jokes? Yeah. So he just trips the guy and he's just like, Whoa. like <laughs> his expressions are are priceless. There was a there's a, a deleted scene on the DVD where apparently they had a newscaster who is a bit of a jerk who eventually quits because that cameraman is like like popping open a soda and burping during the newscast while working the camera that's it i've had it it's a shame he wasn't used more i mean he's got a great face he does have a great face and yeah if you want to see more of him of course he's in the fat video uh as one of the gang members yo homeboy where you been man we've been looking for you yeah, we ain't seen you around Burger World lately. So where you been, huh? Oh, you know, around. Want a piece of pizza? Think I got extra pizza around here somewhere. No, that's okay, thanks. Yo, ding dong, man. Ding dong. Ding dong, yo. Yeah, so he definitely, I mean, he was. He, that was the, the role he was born to play, I think. Mm-hmm. He didn't even need any lines of dialogue. Like, his, his facial expressions, they said more than any words he could have said. Those cutaways to him when he is seeing just the craziness of what's happening on screen or what he's he's taping, just amazing. <laughs> you know, that's the thing that I like about this movie. It has that kind of anarchic feel of some of my other favorite films. You know, this has that kind of craziness of like a Kentucky Fried movie where it's or Amazon Women on the Moon where you know Amazon Women has a very similar premise but that's more like flipping from one channel to another which I know has been done in, in other comedy shows as well but this one it's all on one channel so it's what can one channel bring to us it's it's basically taking what SCTV did as a TV show and making it into a movie and I think that's a very successful concept and I think it's one that they were right to go with yeah, I hadn't thought about it being SCTV, but yeah, you're right, because that was a TV show that was a TV station, and all the mm-hmm. skits were different shows. And if Al had been evil, he might have been Guy Caballero. Instead, he's the little guy against the big corporation, and of course that is a very popular thing for me to enjoy when it comes to movies. And uh, you know, you're really rooting for him, and you're rooting for these other lovable losers that he's surrounded himself with. I brought up Elvira a little bit ago, and this just seemed to be that kind of era of being a, 
a personality and being able to have your own starring vehicle. You know, I know Elvira was slightly before this, but, you know, it seemed like over a few year period of time, they were giving these people who were really big in the 80s their own movie vehicles. And, you know, some of them were successful and some of them weren't, weren't necessarily that successful. Yeah, Yahoo well, Serious did have a movie, though. He had uh, yes, Young Einstein. Had young Einstein. Three. Except I, I didn't know who he was until that movie came out, but apparently he was already famous somewhere. In Australia, I believe. Yeah, yeah, that was our love affair with Australia. Yeah, that was when Jacko was really big on the Duracell commercials. Oh, yeah. I'm a quiet guy. I just get so excited that Energizer really is the longest-lasting battery. I can't help myself. It'll surprise you! Buy Energizer batteries, and I can go back to being shy and retiring. I think what happened was um, back then, that was before... Uh, they started giving like every comedian their own sitcom. So they kind of started with, oh, well, this person was famous or this person was a comedian. Uh, let's give them a movie and you know try to figure out how to make that work. And then that never really went over because there was a bunch of them. You know, the Carrot Top movie didn't do well and the Elvira movie. I love the Elvira movie, um, but that didn't do particularly well. And I guess they just started going with, well, uh, let's start to give them sitcoms. And then, you know, that's kind of how we got like just – over uh, overabundance of sitcoms with stand-up comedians. It's almost like, you know, hey, have you got, you know, uh, have you got a special yet? Well, you know, we're going to give you a show just because. Gosh, I wish you had been on that Elvira show with me. How can you, how can you not like the Elvira movie? It's so ridiculous. I was saying before we got on the air that, you know, I was hoping that Skiz and Cecil were going to surprise me. And when I asked them if they liked the movie, they'd be like, no, God, this is terrible. So that's pretty much how that episode went down. Oh, no. I think it's kind of good. No, you're wrong. Uh, I, I will admit that rewatching UHF the other day, I groaned more through this viewing than I ever did in the past. But there, there were still moments that really made me crack up. There are moments, I was watching it with my wife, and there are moments where Weird Al kind of adopts that high-pitched voice thing, especially when he's begging with Terry. And in the beginning, when he like gives Bob a, a what is it, a frying pan or something, and it tells him to bash his head in with it, and it's just like, yeah, this stuff is kind of annoying. But if you can make it past like the first 10 minutes of it, that's when I think that a really you know, heats up. But watching it from an outsider's point of view, I was just like, wow, yeah, he's kind of an annoying character until he gets his own TV station. What can I say? I'm a miserable, worthless hunk of slime. Here. I want you to take this crowbar and just bash my head right in. Go ahead, really, please. Just, just bash it right in. George, did you get fired again? Yes! Yes, it's all true! I just don't know it! You know, there's one gag that I, I love that has nothing to do with anything. And that's the homeless guy and the blind guy on the park bench playing with the Rubik's Cube. <laughs> Is this it? Nope. Is this it? Nope. Is this it? I had forgotten all about that until I watched it the other day. I was like, oh, yeah, I, I totally remember that. that laughing about that for years. Well, there are things when it comes to Weird Al that even though I am a huge fan and a close personal friend of Al, that I I, I just never really liked. You know, like I love the the parodies, I love the the polka 
versions of stuff. But every once in a while on his albums, he would do those songs where it was like the the, the prime example is that song "Every Minute with You." I think it's called, yeah. where he talks about what he would do to spend just one more minute with this woman and how like he'll eat broken glass and do all this that kind of stuff. And he it seemed like for a long time on every single album he would have a song like that and that was the song that when i would make a, a cassette version of the lps that i would leave off of the cassette version because it's just like yeah this doesn't really do it for me but maybe those are some people's favorite songs of his i actually do love that song enough that it's been a part of my solo act wow <laughs> <laughs> but i know what you mean because he had other songs like that on albums that came that i didn't like nearly as much i mean there was that that one country song you're sort of everything i've ever hoped for you're good enough for now something like that and it's, i was like okay it, it feels like he has a checklist on his albums that okay he needs this sort of ironic doo-wop or country ballad he does always need to have uh, a couple of his like originals on there because you can't fill out the album with just parodies. So he would always, you know, he'd do the, the big parodies and then he would have a couple of his own wacky songs and then he would have the polka. Um, Polkas on 45 type thing. Yeah, the polkas on where it's just, you know, a million mishmashes all done in polka style. And they're always genuinely funny. I, I'm with you. Some of the like original stuff is kind of hit or miss. Uh, it's like, it can be funny. Like there have been some that have been really good. Like I absolutely positively love uh, Christmas at ground zero. That's oh, yes. like one of my like all time favorites, like parody or non parody songs of his. I just, I think it's just a, a fantastic song, but yeah, some of them are kind of like, eh, but you know, Hey man, think of how many albums he's put out and how many albums other bands have put out and they'll have, you know, they have songs that just don't work. So it's kind of like that, you know, nobody's going to put out like a, well, it's very hard to put out a perfect album where like every song is good. I like when he would parody a band or an artist instead of just a specific song, like like the Mr. Popale song. It was a parody of B-52s or Dare to be Stupid being a, a parody of Devo. I thought I, I tend to appreciate those more than the actual song parodies. I mean, I think that's why Mandatory Fun went to number one, was very, very good marketing campaign and this whole idea of taking all of those parody songs and making videos for those and putting those out before the album ever came out. You know, And each of those, I mean, because he did a ton of parodies on that one. I don't know what the parody to original song ratio is for a normal Weird Al uh, record, but it seems like... I mean, at least three, I'm trying to think of like in 3d and some of those other early albums where you would get like, you know, I lost on jeopardy and the, uh, living with a hernia. So there were probably at least four or five good parodies, if not more per album. And with mandatory fun, taking each one of those parodies and making a video for it and making it in a really different style. I thought it was a brilliant, brilliant marketing move for them to do that. I agree. Good. I also agree. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back real quick as far as talking about everybody gets a movie, you know, this whole concept of, you know, other popular entertainers getting a movie. And I think that also kind of helped play into the SNL phenomenon. You know, we had had the Blues Brothers, and I'm trying to remember there's at least one other SNL movie that people don't realize is an SNL movie before. Uh, Wayne's World, but Wayne's World coming out in 92 really seemed to hearken this whole idea of like every character gets a movie. And it's funny that Wayne's World in 92 was 
kind of similar to UHF, but really they spent so little time actually talking about the Wayne's World show. It was much more outside of the studio. It doesn't seem like when I think about the film, I don't remember them shooting the cable show, the the public access show, very much at all. But, you know, it was it was an interesting thing that they kind of took that idea and, and ran with it. It wasn't Saturday Night Live, it was SCTV, but Strange Brew was just a few years before UHF, and that's that's another one of those spin-off from a, a late night comedy show movies. I think with with Saturday Night Live after Wayne's World was so big, they really were just grasping at straws. They were taking like every sketch that was even remotely popular and trying to make a movie out of it. And Wayne's World worked because you had a really good creative team behind it. But like when they did like It's Pat and uh, what was oh they did uh, the 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 Al Franken um, Stuart Smalley. Yep, Stuart saves his family. Stuart saves his family, and like they were just really awful. And it's like, well, it's not so much that it was bad; it's just that there wasn't anything that they could really do with those characters, and kind of to to fill ninety minutes. And they really stretched the premise just so thin. Uh, oh God, the Superstar movie just. I mean, just, you know, all right, there's this buffoon that falls over all the time. It's a superstar. And, like, you're going to fill up 90 minutes of that. And, yeah, I think that uh, they kind of really kept shooting themselves in the foot instead of, like, looking into, all right, well, we want to make movies, but maybe we should pick, like, the right movies to make instead of just shotgunning it. Yeah, I was always very surprised that Rob the Copy Guy and the Church Lady never got their own films. Ladies Man and, and Night at the Roxbury. Oh, God. Uh, I've never been able to make it through Night at the Roxbury. <laughs> the only thing funny about Night at the Roxbury was Colin Quinn with the, you know, are you touching, you know, because Chaz Palminteri kept calling him and be like, are you touching my ass? And he's like, I'm on the I'm on the phone. I'm not anywhere near you. How can I be touching your ass? <laughs> like, Did you just grab my ass? Sir, from where I'm standing, that's a physical impossibility. It's funny how, how long after the fact Coneheads came out. Yeah. <laughs> like if they were trying to cash in on those skits, like they were how many decades too late? Come on. Dan Aykroyd's all about cashing in on his former success. <laughs> God, is he ever. I love Dan Aykroyd. But yeah, he like when he came out on the uh, Ghostbusters, uh, you know, is going to be awesome tour. Uh, and all these people are like, no, Dan Aykroyd said that it's going to be great. I'm like, yeah, he said it's going to be great. You know why? Because he's the executive producer. <laughs> it looks terrible. <laughs> He said Blues Brothers 2000 was going to be great, oh. too. <laughs> That's another movie I walked out on. <laughs> that is a tough sit. It really is. And where's Dr. Detroit 2? Just tell me that. I, exactly. Come on. I, you know, of all the things you could cash in on, Dr. Detroit 2, I, I guess maybe it's not uh, family friendly enough. Because uh, that's kind of what he did with like that. You know, after watching the Blues Brothers, what I thought of was, you know what? We need to do a version of this for kids. <laughs> and that's kind of what Blues Brothers 2000 was. All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play an interview with the director, co-writer, and most importantly, the man who played Gandhi in the Gandhi 2 preview, Mr. J. Levy. And we'll be back with that after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, 
a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hey. Hello. A little bit of introduction. We are the Film Room Cast. I am Albert Weltfong. I'm Austin Shin. And we talk about movies. We just we talk about anything we like to our heart's content. We talk about everything from the very best films ever made to the very worst. <laughs> and we have scraped the bottom of the barrel on the worst ones. It's it's not what you'd expect either. No, no, no. We are the uh, kind of cast for which Birdemic is a step above some of the stuff we've covered. I hesitate to say this, but the room is a little bit higher than some of the stuff we've covered. But on the other hand, we've also covered stuff like The Godfather, Magnolia. We've covered the very best cinema has to offer, the very worst, so don't try to pigeonhole us. And of course, we like to talk about the hot-button topics. We try not to get too political, but we take a political stance. We're people, we have to. We have... A huge backlog. We've been running for about three years. We've got casts on the MPAA. We've got stuff on, like, adaptations. We've got stuff on movies that have been turned into TV shows. A couple of nostalgia retrospectives looking at things like movie theaters and video stores. Proud of those ones. And we've even got at least one cast on a movie that doesn't exist, so... <laughs> got that. Oh yeah, with uh, with more to come. So that's us. That's us. Uh, so yeah, listen to the film room. I have to credit the backtrack. It is from John Carpenter's album Lost Themes. I suggest picking up that album. It's a really great album. But yeah, you can find us at thefilmroom.podbean.com or on iTunes if you prefer to subscribe there. We're out there. Yeah. Thank you all. Hope you listen to us and good night. All right. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon, 
that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year, at least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. There's just one place to go for all your spatula needs. Spatula City! Spatula City! A giant warehouse of spatulas for every occasion. Thousands to choose from in every shape, size, and color. And because we eliminate the middleman, we can sell all our spatulas factory direct to you. Where do you go when you want to buy name brand spatulas at a fraction of retail cost? Spatula City! Spatula City! And this weekend only, take advantage of our special liquidation sale. Buy nine spatulas, get the tenth one for just one penny. Don't forget, they make great Christmas presents. And what better way to say I love you than with the gift of a spatula? Spatula City! Spatula City! Hello, this is Cy Greenbloom, president of Spatula City. I like their spatulas so much, I bought the company. Spatula City, seven locations. We're in the yellow pages under spatulas. My, where did you get that lovely spatula? How did you get into show business? Coming out of college in 1973, I found myself, through a long story short, starting a lecture bureau out of my apartment in Los Angeles. And uh, what we did is uh, we uh, represented futurists, essentially, uh, just as it sounds, people who had different takes on the future, but different uh, different sort of categories within that. But they all basically talked about the future. And uh, like one example was uh, I represented Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who was a UFO expert, if you will, if there is such a thing, but he was certainly considered that, and he was the uh, primary consultant for Spielberg on uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and in fact, Hynek had even coined the phrases of Close Encounters of of the First, Second, and Third Kind. So I represented him as a speaker right at the time that Close Encounters came out as film. That's an example of the kinds of things that we did um, at this little agency that I had called Future Presentations. What happened after a few years of that, I guess I did that for about three or four years, I got increasingly frustrated with the notion of being an agent, because in the end, that's what I was. I had an agency, we represented these folks, but our job, the principal job of an agent is to 
get gigs, whether it's music or it's, you know, in my case at that point, it was uh, lectures. After a while, I just became frustrated with the, especially with the fact that I was representing all these brilliant people. And I was in direct contact, of course, with all of them. Yet all I ever really talked about with any of them was bookings and money. And it was, you know, so without judging that, because that's what agents do, um, I was getting just very frustrated with that. And that's when I knew that management was a, uh, a much more creative aspect of entertainment where you are guiding uh, an artist's career and a lot of the choices that you make have nothing to do with money. Many of them, of course, do, but many of them don't. Many of them have to do with perception and positioning and long-term strategy and all kinds of things like that. And so I decided I was going to um, stop being a lecture agent when one of my one of my clients in the uh, who we represented as a speaker after we had actually decided that we were going to branch out from just representing futurists so I did a complete 180 and one of my one of my clients that I rep- that I took on for live engagements was Dr. Demento the radio personality uh, I was in Los Angeles. He was very, very well known uh, in Los Angeles and basically approached him and said, you know, would you like representation? He said, sure. And that began not only that aspect of my career as a manager, because shortly after I decided it's much more fun and much more interesting guiding a career being a manager. So I then became a manager, I left the agency and left it to other people to take over and just became a manager, um, bringing with me my first, one of my first clients who came with me as a management client was in fact Dr. Demento, which then of course led to uh, discovering and uh, meeting uh, Weird Al. Now, were there other people that you kind of discovered through Demento? Because he was in touch with so many. I mean, I remember the tapes that he used to play every week. There were so many people sending him stuff. I didn't pursue any others, meaning with Al, it was, a, it, first of all, Al was a cut above everyone else that was sending in stuff to Dr. Demento. I mean, with no disrespect towards those folks, I mean, they all did wonderful, great, funny terrific work, but, uh, you know, Al was a cut above. It was easy to tell, even back then when he was just forming as an artist, that he was a cut above and that he had a level of comedy that was on par with, frankly, with the masters. In other words, he that he had used for his inspiration. And bringing him out to a Dr. Demento show live... Um, at a club and seeing how he performed and seeing how the audience responded, it was really kind of obvious that he had such potential as an artist, whereas I really didn't feel that way about, you know, the, the different people that would send in music to Dr. Demento. They were kind of in their own little, terrific little world, but not artists that I would also look to you know, manage as, uh, as artists. It just, there was nobody that was remotely uh, even close to Al in terms of talent that I saw. 
So what was that relationship like between you and Al in these early years, trying to bring him more into the spotlight? Well, I was doing what a manager does, which is being strategic about what are we, you know, making all the decisions, of course, all with him. I mean, a good manager is going to be, is going to be both transparent uh, with their client. They're, they're going to be, you know, both assertive and hopefully knowledgeable and smart about things, but also be really inclusive and transparent with their clients. So Al and I together, you know, with me as a manager, my job was, you know, to create and recommend strategies that would uh, move him along. So the very, very first thing we did, really, after I saw him perform the first, for the first time and, and at that Dr. Demento live show, it was, at, I think, a club in Phoenix or something, and it was just Alan as a and it was so obvious that, you know, well, wow, if he can sound and perform like this on his own, imagine what he would do with a band. And it was clear to me that um, that's what he would have wanted. I mean, he had that level of parody where it wasn't just, he was, it was so easy to see that because, again, because of the level of his talent, he wouldn't have been satisfied even to have just like been, you know, this like nutty guy with the accordion doing parodies on his accordion. I mean, that's that's like almost the clear definition of a of a novelty artist, which, in my view, he transcended the moment that I saw him in terms of what his potential was. Of course, that's a moniker that he's had to live with for a long time, and it's probably only only in the last decade that he's really pretty much gotten rid of it because part of what is suggested by being called a novelty artist is that you're kind of very short-lived as an artist, and uh, he's obviously the opposite of that. It's a long way of answering your question, which is uh, just different. So I, I guess what I was about to say was that uh, it was uh, it was obvious from that performance that he um, could use a band so that when presenting the parodies, it would sound like the originals, not like, again, some nutty guy with an accordion. And a brilliant accordion player, by all means, but um, nonetheless, that's still what it was. So anyway, he, you know, instantly agreed. I mean, it was like it just happened very quickly. I, you know, would you like to work together? Absolutely, sure. Let's go. You know, have you thought about doing this for a career? Well, of course, I, of course, I have. And and sure, let's. Go. It was just. It was hardly any discussion to it. It was just kind of so obvious. We were both in this sort of. It was like it's a perfect example of the cosmic tumblers coming falling into place at a certain time and place, you know. And so um, there was hardly any discussion about it, and hardly any discussion about the very first strategic element, which would be putting a band together. So that was pretty much the very first thing we did. And then, you know, from there, it's what a manager does in terms of we were able to put together uh, a situation with a producer. Um, Rick Derringer to get uh, you know a, a, an album done on spec, and then you shop the album for a record deal, and out of the record deal you begin touring, and you know it's all those kinds of strategic things. The seeds for UHF were planted, I would say, pretty shortly after he, he well he had hit with of course with the Michael Jackson parody, uh, Eat the parody of Beat It called Eat It. And, of course, it sort of propelled him into instantly into the stratosphere of someone who's, who went from being, you know, essentially anonymous to 
being known everywhere, although at that point, and he always jokes about this, that for the longest time, he wasn't Weird Al Yankovic. He was the Eat It guy. But so this Eat It guy um, just, uh, you know, you know, was enormously successful with that single. And I guess it would have been, you know, I really should know the year, but it's been a long time, obviously. Um, but it was probably within three, it was, it was by the second album. Well, no, well, that was the second album, was Eat It. So I would say it was right around the time of the third album, uh, Dare to be Stupid, which somewhere around that time where because he was becoming as well known for his visuals as he was for his music with his music videos, it just seemed like such a natural, obvious fit for him to do a movie. And we were approached right around that time by a guy with New Line, which I don't believe exists anymore. They might, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I think they were behind the Lord of the Rings movies, I want to say. New Line is doing Lord of the Rings? I thought that they were the ones that were doing those. Wow. I guess they exist. <laughs> I should know that. Uh, there's a lot of things I should remember, and I don't. Uh, anyway, we were approached to do a movie, which, of course, the development process of that is to do a script first. and. Um, we instantly had the idea for the movie. Uh, again, it was just like one of those things that just seems so, it's just like, you know, these things that are just so natural and they're kind of right in front of you. It took hardly any time at all to really come up with the conceit for UHF. And so we did the script for them and it would have been right around. So again, it would have been right around the Dare to be Stupid album. And then, uh, we tr- we shopped it for a while and got nowhere. Meaning they, it, it was put into turnaround by new line which turnaround means you've now delivered the script that they've paid you to write, um, hoping that they're going to say uh, they're going to uh, do what's called a green light, which is they uh, give you a green light or a go to make the movie. Instead, they said, for any number of reasons, and I, I really don't remember at the time, no, we're not going to make this movie, and so uh, we're putting this in turnaround, which basically means that you're free to shop it elsewhere and that, you know, I guess the first dollars that come in have to go back to pay back their original investment. And anybody, of course, any screenwriter is happy to do that to get their movie made. And so anyway, so then we, after we uh, pitched it for a while and uh, really didn't get get anywhere with it until uh, it got essentially that we were with William Morris at the time. And we had a, uh, uh, you know, just sort of the classic young, eager, hustling agent who really believed in Al and us and in the script. And uh, he um, presented it to two people who worked with the producers, John Hyde and Gene Kirkwood. John Hyde had done, among other things, Bass Boat. Gene Kirkwood had become, you know, an instant wonder in Hollywood with uh, producing uh, Rocky. And they together, Gene and John, had formed a production company. The script was, was presented to these guys who worked for Gene and John by William Morris. They loved the script, brought it to Gene and John, who didn't 
you know, they sort of got it as much as they could. I mean, I wouldn't say that they were um, really, uh, you know, uh, comedically uh, on the same page as us. But, you know, they basically saw Al's success and that it was rising and that he was very talented. And they trusted their guys a lot who said, this is a great script and if we can, you know, we really recommend uh, making it. And any good producers are going to listen to their sort of young guys on the front lines like that. And they basically said, look, if we can make this for a price, sure, let's see if we can get it sold. And and so they in turn then went to Orion, who was best known. They are now out of business, but they were best known at the time for Woody Allen and many other talents. And uh, it got put together between uh, Gene and John and Orion. You weren't just a manager, though. You definitely worked with Al in a, in a very close capacity. And one of the things that I see that you're credited for is actually directing a lot of these videos. What was that process like for you? I mean, you directed the Eat It video, which to me was you know a classic. I couldn't even tell which music video I was watching for the longest time. Like there was a finally a moment where I watched the music video and then I'm like, okay, this is the Michael Jackson or this is the Weird Al. It was done so perfectly. Well, thank you. It was another one of those really organic things with us where, uh, with me and Al, in the sense that, see, I, as a kid, I grew up deeply, deeply into... But probably my two favorite artists, and I wore these records out, were Alan Sherman and the Smothers Brothers. I, and, you know, I mean, I, I also, you know, I, obviously I grew up on the Beatles and, and you know, I'm, a, I'm almost your classic child of the 60s. But as a young kid, you know, in my, you know, 10, 12, 13 years old, you know, and right, right in that pocket, which is, you know, it, it turns out, I, I didn't know at the time, um, in managing how all these years, it, it, it became um, evident fairly quickly that, you know, if you're a 12-year-old boy, your DNA is screaming for irreverence. No matter who you came from, no matter who your parents are, pretty much you are dying for uh, some form of irreverence. Um, and, um, and that sure was me. And, uh, you know, I listened to, as I said, to Alan Sherman and, and this Mothers Brothers just, you know, I can't I can't begin to tell you how influenced and how important those two were for me, you know, um, growing up when I discovered them. Um, and, and, you know, also a lover of Mad Magazine. And so when I first got working with Dr. Demento and then with Al, this was so incredibly natural for me. You know, for many managers, it's a business, and they don't even necessarily – enjoy or understand well i shouldn't say understand if they're a good manager they will understand their artist's talent but they may not be at all on the same page you know sort of creatively with it in their own you know sort of personally um you know for many managers if not most managers it's really you know they recognize a talent and the way that it connects with an audience and they see how they can nurture that strategically but again they don't need to be their friends or you know or close uh creative compatriots with their artists in fact usually that's frowned against especially by the artist the artist doesn't want a manager bugging into their art for the most part you know but for us it was it was very interesting because i did have that background and al 
knew that I had that background, and also the fact that I represented Dr. Demento. I mean, Al, for, for at that point in Al's career, Dr. Demento was it, meaning not just the fact that he was a huge star within that refined small galaxy, but nonetheless an, an important one for musical comedy. For Al, it was everything. I mean, he grew up listening to Dr. Demento and reading Mad Magazine, but Dr. Demento was like, that was when he first got played, you know, when he sent in a tape from, that he recorded in his bedroom, you know, to Dr. Demento, it got played on the air. He had reached the mountaintop as far as he was concerned. You know, there was almost no, nowhere else to go because he hadn't quite yet begun allowing to himself to dream that he could do it as a living, you know, for a living and, and do it professionally. I guess what I'm, I'm trying to describe is how it goes from the, the, where the, the relationship was organically and naturally one of, it's, it's too much to say that, uh, it was a collaboration. I mean, it was certainly a collaboration. The genius and the vision came from him. There's no question. It did not come from me. And and a lot of that, you know, it's funny because I, you know, I've done other things in my career. I've directed other things. I'm in the middle of another screenplay right now, and I like to think that I do have certain vision. But my job as a manager first was to usher his vision and sublimate mine. It, it wasn't my place. I, I it, you know, certainly uh, I wanted to bring to the relationship a certain strength that would lift his vision, and that's what I think I've done over the years. So that, again, to answer your question, is to, talking about that relationship because I had this natural tendency, the way that I came up with musical comedy. He recognized that, so he welcomed my input. It wasn't like a manager butting in as much as, as, much as it was two against the world, not one against the world. In other words, it, it classically would be the artist against the world, and then it's the manager who tries to bring that artist you know, um, into the fold uh, commercially. For us, it was really two against the world. We were kind of a team in that sense. But clearly the vision came from him. So my job was to execute, get, make sure that the vision got executed. And one of the ways to do that was with music videos. They were just starting. MTV was just starting. There was nobody doing what Al does from a, from a recording standpoint. So we filled that void to begin with. And his videos were going to need to be a very certain thing, a very specific kind of a thing to represent, you know, his musical comedy. You couldn't just bring in some, you know, at that point there were like all these auteurs who were like 19 years old and suddenly they were like hotshot music video directors and many of them were terrific. Um, a lot of them were terrific. But, that, but they were making music videos and, they, and by definition they were taking themselves pretty seriously and that's not at all who we were. So part of it, a big part of it was just, to, you know, kind of deciding that, you know, making a music video, it's not going to be brain surgery. We, you know, we're just, we need to represent frame by frame. We need to represent the jokes. And we both believed that, you know, we could do that alone. And so I say we, because it was always his vision. And my job as a director and deciding, well, so I'm just going to become a director, you know, and, and, execute this vision it can't be that hard you know 
and that was really, really was our attitude, as much if not more so, like we don't want anybody else to be doing it. Like the first, there were two people, as you probably know, the, the Ricky video and the I Love Rocky Road video. It was, that was really what put us into this mindset because those two videos were done by other people. And we did sort of go along with this notion of, well, there's people calling themselves music video directors, and I guess we've got to get one of those to do these videos, you know? Uh, you know, they were both delightful people, but, you know, they were not on, you know, really close to getting on the same page as what really the, you know, the videos needed to be. Now, you know, to, to give them, not, not to take too much credit away from them, you know, we were fledgling as well, and Al was fledgling as well in terms of his vision, and, and nonetheless, we were inserting a lot of our thoughts and needs onto the directors who typically and or very often would just say, this is my vision, I'm, I'm going to turn your song into a music video. They, we certainly had input, and you know, and they, and, and uh, you know, we, 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 all I can say, I guess, is when we look back on those two videos, they just feel very primitive. They even felt sort of like that to us at the time, even though we were hardly developed as, you know, in that field and creating music videos. But it was after really that experience that we decided we should just do this ourselves because we can do it best. We we see how the process works. It's not brain surgery it's not and, and you know yes you do you need certain skills but so much of it is comedy and those skills are just right there they're self-evident let's just you know we can do this so um and so that's how it began and and so i did uh you know the first 10 years or so of music of his music videos as a director again following you know almost completely following his vision you know with the first couple of videos the first few videos that that i directed i was i i probably had more to contribute creatively to what ended up on the screen even at that point though it wasn't a whole lot but it was more after a few it was really he would just hand me storyboards and just say let's make this you know and it was my job to execute that and do it well so that and that's what we did for all those years so it sounds like it was fairly natural for you to be the director of UHF then. Yeah, it was a it was a natural extension of that process. Again, it was like we hardly even discussed it. It was just like, well, we've created this successful team between us of creating visual art in the, in the form of music videos. We wanted to protect the vision of the script we had written together. You know, there really wasn't ever any discussion about let's just find a really good, you know, established comedy director because, you know, what Al does and what and what he did and continues to do is such a particular kind. I mean, every, you know, you hear the term often that a comedian has a voice and it takes a comedian X number of years to find their voice and it's a unique voice. And, of course, that could be extended out to pretty much any artist, really, it doesn't have to just be comedy and finding your quote-unquote voice. That's what an artist does, is they find their voice and then they put it out there. Well, Al has a very, very distinctive voice, and it was, especially in the early days, easily mistaken as a novelty thing, again, getting back to that, 
which is never really seen to have a serious voice. It seemed to, it's 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 looked at as like one of those, you know, anybody can do parody. You just, you know, that's what I do in the shower every morning. You know, kind of kind of a an attitude. Until it became clear over the years to those kinds of, I mean, there are many many people who clicked with Al just the way I clicked with Alan Sherman and Al clicked with Alan Sherman growing up. That you you don't view it at all like a novelty, but many 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 the 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 wider perception commercially is that novelty perception so again there it, it's there's that danger when you hand your material over to somebody else that they're not going to really they're not going to live inside those jokes that's a, that that you wrote in the screenplay they're going to almost kind of approximate them but not live them if if that makes any sense and we wrote it. We got it. We, you know, I mean, we lived them in the sense that we wrote it. And, 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 you know, it was clear as a bell what we, what we would want on the screen. So again, it just became really natural. And it was never a question for Hyde and Kirkwood to allow me, if you will, to direct my first feature. That's always, you know, for somebody to direct their first feature is a big deal. I mean, it's like the break of a lifetime, essentially. And, and, you know, uh, it's with great reluctance that any, that any producer joins forces with a first-time director because of all the things that can go wrong, basically, with the lack of experience that a director has. But they went, you know, they, with, with all the... At that point, we had done how many? Uh, you know, seven, eight music videos where... And, and it just kept getting stronger and stronger, and they could see it. And, you know, it, it really wasn't... It wasn't a stretch for them at all, and so that's it was just again just one of those completely organic things that grew out of the relationship. But still, to, to jump from music videos to a full feature film where you're dealing with you know some great great actors like Kevin McCarthy, Anthony Geary, these kind of guys, that must have been just a little bit scary for you. Uh, yeah, it was definitely a combination of exhilarating and terrifying. Sure, but. I will tell you that the adrenaline on the set, you know, the, the terror, if you will, you know, the fear is so much greater. Like before you set foot on the floor, um, on the production floor, you know, when you are, you know, certainly just, you know, you see what's up in front of you and so much of it you don't see because you can't because you don't have the experience. So, you know, yeah, there's, you know, it's, it's, it is really scary and then you kind of you show up on the floor the first day of shooting and there's your script having come to life through a set designer and through wardrobe great wardrobe people and incredible actors and a terrific director of photography and just all these professionals who do this for a living all taking it extremely seriously you know it's that old cliche that comedy is a serious business well it absolutely is i mean you've got to really be serious about how you craft your jokes so that it, it plays funny. You know, you sh- you show up on set and it's just you kick in. There's just this, adger- it, this uh, there's this adrenaline that essentially never goes away because you've got you're now going to be shooting. I think what did we shoot for? I think it was like five weeks or something like that, five or six weeks in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and um, you know you have uh, you know you get days off like anybody does, but it's a, it's a full-time job for four to five weeks or five to six weeks. And, um, 
And it's just, you know, you, you go from one setup to the next, to the next, to the next, and you've got all this, this whole professional team as, as you're not, you know, as both a safety net, you could look at them in some ways as a safety net. Like if you properly delegate to all these people, let them do their job, they're going to make you look great, which is, of course, really the way it happens in so many instances. It's so, there's this giant team that goes into making every frame of a movie, you know? So, you know, you're lifted up by, I was lifted up by, uh, you know, this amazing crew and, and cast. Um, and just, it was kind of no looking back. And, and once you see your jokes represented in real life, you know, by these great actors and with these great sets and all that, it's so it's so completely natural at that point because this is your vision having you know come to life in a very real way, not as interpreted by some other director who is just you know so it's through their eyes it's through their lens and it's not quite the way you would envision it, but it's fine you know well that wasn't us it was you know it was exactly our vision so it was so exil that the exhilaration really took over at that point and. So I really can't say that, you know, um, I, I certainly I had an enormous learning curve as a director of a, of a feature versus doing music videos and the differences that go into that, the enormous differences. But again, it was uh, the, the fear really became much more one of excitement once, you know, we got to the actual filming part. Was everybody pretty much on the same page when it came to your guys' sense of humor, especially talking about the actors when it comes to getting the jokes and being able to represent those the right way? Everyone. Part of the joy of that film, <clears throat> right down to probably the two most interesting in that way who you never maybe would have expected the first, of course, would have been Kevin McCarthy, who was a serious actor. I mean, he'd never done anything like this. And so there was that role model of, like, Leslie Nielsen, you know, of the serious actor doing that sort of tongue-in-cheek, playing its straight version of comedy that was, you know, pre pretty much put forth by the, uh, you know, the Zucker brothers. So he's a perfect example, but he had the time of, of his life. It was like he, you know, he was just, you know, all the characters really in that script were like cartoon characters. And his, uh, Kevin's character, you know, Fletcher, was like this cartoon character villain. You might as well have put a mustache on him that he would be twirling throughout the whole thing. You know, I mean, it was that caricature of, an, of a villain. That's what made it fun. And he just bought into it. He knew, I mean... You know, when you when you discuss the roles of actors, go you don't just hire them, although you can, and it, and we practically did with pretty much everybody because that's how much on the same page they really were. But he's an example of, of you know he he was a serious actor, but he just embraced every moment of the comedy. Um, it was almost like a certain kind of a freedom that maybe he had never experienced before. It was just really wonderful to watch him just put everything into. Uh, into it, he really, really owned that character, and and you know this wasn't like okay, well, I'm a serious actor, but I'm getting older, and um, uh, you know roles aren't coming um, as frequently for me, and it's a role, and it's and it's a payday, and you know sure maybe I'll have some fun. So you know it could have so easily been that, and it so wasn't. It was the opposite. He he just embraced it totally, and it was such a kick 
you know, working with him. And the other one that was also unexpected in that way was Anthony Geary, who was, you know, a heartthrob on General Hospital, you know, known, by, you know, by millions of women, you know, as, you know, this heartthrob on, on General, on a soap opera, on a daytime soap opera. And we were, you know, and our casting director said, Tony Geary wants to, you know, wants to come in and, and read for um, the role of Philo. And we were like, Al and I, you know, we really like to think that we were, uh, and again, I say we, not because typically the, it would simply be a conversation between the casting director and the director, but Al and I were, you know, continued to be a team through the whole process. So I'll continue to use the word we, even though I was directing. And so we um, thought, we like to think that we like to we like to think that at the time that we were pretty open minded, you know. Um, but Tony Geary, really a heartthrob from from a soap opera? Are you sure? And and you know they were like you know he look he's really interesting and he's looking to go against type because he's so he's so tired of just that one note of what he's been known for all these years. You know, bring him in. It can't hurt. You know, we were like, okay. And he walked in with the, what you see on screen is exactly the role of Philo that he walked into the room with when he read for us. He, he had thought about it clearly. This is how I'm going to play it. And we were, we were dumb. We were, we were dumbfounded. We couldn't believe it. It was, it was like, oh my God, this is just too cool. You know? And so we threw, we didn't care at that point, you know, what, uh, it was to us. It was just unbelievably cool that like nobody knew him for this, and you know here's this guy who's known for the opposite, who's going to play you know this totally oddball character. So, again, yes, everybody. Those are two examples of people who uh, you know everybody was on the same page, and there's two examples of people who you never thought would have been on the same page that were on the same page. Yeah, I have to say he was unrecognizable for me for quite a few years. It took me somebody else pointing out that's Luke from General Hospital for me to be like, you're kidding me. There's no way. Because I just had missed his name in the credits for whatever reason, and I couldn't believe that it was him. Yeah. And again, just like Kevin, he totally embraced it. He was such a joy to work with. He he, he took it so seriously. He was so thrilled, again, with the opportunity to shed his image for a minute and just do something else that was so completely different. He was so appreciative of that in, in such a genuine way. And he threw himself into that, you know, and you can see it on the screen. He really, you know, he sold that, um, that character, you know. There are times in the movie where it's in danger of being stolen right out from Al by Michael Richards. What was it like working with him as Stanley Spadowski? Yeah, there's two issues in that question. But to answer the second part of the second question, I guess. Michael is a, um, again, to, you know, I used the word genius for Al earlier. I'll use it forever, you know, for him. He is that, and I don't use that term lightly. Um, it's obviously easy for me to say as a manager, and I'm preaching to my own choir, but I, uh, trust me when I'm not, when I say I'm not. Um, uh, but I would say the same for Michael. Michael um, is such an artist and takes his art so seriously, almost to a point where he can, he can hurt himself. You know, there's, uh, some artists are like that, where they're so deeply um, driven by how, by what their particular voice, getting back to that, is, 
and maintaining and furthering that voice, um, it can be almost daunting in how seriously and how in, intense they are. So Michael's an, another great example. He, you know, when he there's a whole story about how he came to be as Stanley Spadowski, but the point is that when he came in after we couldn't get him to come in initially, when he walked in the door that first time when he agreed to talk about the part, and we really, that was one of those instances where we pretty much felt like if he will accept this role, we couldn't, we could hardly do any better. We were just such fans of his. It was really more just to make sure we were just almost like more on the same page as much as the same page creatively with the script, almost as people and as artists in a certain way, you know, in terms of how you're going to work together. Um, and he brought that intensity to his reading when he came in to read for the part. And, you know, uh, right down to, I don't know if people know this, um, but one of the ways that he enhanced that character was he had a set of, uh, would you call them prosthetic teeth? They were fake teeth. They were his front teeth, not his bottom ones. And just his front teeth that gave him that look of just the... It, it, it it transformed him into Stanley. He actually was wearing those teeth when he came in to uh, to uh, talk to us and and to to be Stanley for us, you know. So that the relationship with working with Michael was like that the whole time. It was very intense. It was totally joyful because we loved. He brought to that character exactly what we wanted in that character. I mean, again, it couldn't have been more spot on. So we were thrilled to let him go as far as he could. It was actually quite frustrating for Michael because he was so much an improv artist. You know, he came from sort of the Jonathan Winters school of comedy of, and Robin Williams, you know, where it's just like anything goes. And it's, so much of it is based on improv. And he was that kind of an artist. And we we would not have much of that per se, meaning... You know, it was clear, we were clear from the beginning, like this, we like the script that we wrote. You're perfect for it, but we're not, you know, we can try things, but we don't want to veer much from this script. We want you to bring the amazing things that you have to that script and to that text and to that dialogue. But we do need you to mostly stick with, um, you know, the written word. So it was actually a bit frustrating for him, um, to do that, but he did. He was a pro and couldn't have done it better. And so again, really the answer is just it was joyful and intense, you know, the whole time uh, working with him. Now, does that also answer that first part of the question that I didn't even realize I was asking, the whole in danger of being stolen from him? Right. You know, we struggled with that from the moment we wrote, we started writing that we realized we were creating, we were setting this up in a way where he was almost playing the straight man in a, in a certain kind of a way to a straight man. Like there was clearly lots of comedy in Al's role. There's no question because the movie we were making was a comedy. But when you look at the constellation of oddball care and cartoon like characters surrounding George Newman, he became, by definition almost, the straight man to their insanity. 
and we quickly became aware that we were doing that, but we really liked what was coming out. So, you know, it's funny. We never, we sublimated to the art at that point and to the work and to the, and to the written word and to the comedy, ultimately. And it's like, so what's going to play funniest? And it's like, there was never, you know, we were aware of it. And certainly, you know, when you're developing a career, you're going to be very cognizant of how is this going to further my career? And, and the example of that is, am I going to be, is this a vehicle for me where I can really be, you know, stretching out some serious chops on screen? And actually, the answer for that was no for him, right? I mean, it was, uh, that's the point that you're bringing, and it's, and it's, a, and it's a, a prevalent one that we've, you know, sort of heard over the years. But I don't know that to this day we really would regret anything about that. Meaning it's like we created this little universe of a movie and he played a certain part in that. And I think his having, with the primary vision of it coming from him again, with again my job mostly being to execute that vision, although I had a little bit more to do with the vision itself as a co-writer, I don't want to sell myself short, but still, you know, I mean, he certainly tipped the balance of the scale when it came to the vision, right? As he should, um, and as I saw that he should, you know. You know, we saw that from the beginning, that, that that's the universe we were creating. And, you know, as the visionary and the co-writer and as the lead with the, with the name recognition that is hanging where you hang your hat on the commercially on the film, it was it was plenty enough in a way in our minds to justify any doubts we may have had about you know are we not giving George enough to do essentially on screen is 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 it being stolen not only by Michael but you know by Kevin by Getty by all really by just about everybody in that film they were do that's because they were this as I said this like intense constellation of. Uh, of um, real, real standout, quirky, oddball, cartoon-type characters, you know? That's what became of George Newman naturally. That's who George Newman was, rather, naturally, in creating his character. And so we just gave over to it um, in favor of the best comedy that could be made. How was the movie received when it came out? Um, (laughs) um, It died a quick, horrible, mutilated death <laughs> is, what, is what happened from a commercial standpoint. You know, if you are one of the people, if any one of the people that are listening were one of the people who actually was, you know, one of the 16 people who was in one of the movie theaters around the country who saw it, I mean, obviously I'm exaggerating, but, you know, it, it, it didn't perform at all. It was like this. It was like, you know, I was talking about UFOs earlier. This was a UFO of this movie. And, you know, there was like this, this cult already, it was almost by definition a cult film, we didn't even know it, because we, we thought, because it tested so well with general audiences that we thought we had a, a commercial, that we, that we had, we stood a good chance to have a commercial hit because of how it tested with audiences. But in fact, you know, it was there may there was that very very small cultish kind of audience that was there on the first day that loved it from the first day that it was meaningful for them from the first day but from a commercial standpoint um it just didn't even perform it just 
it's like, you know, it's as if you've got a radar that's full of heat-seeking missiles um, with, uh, that are all loaded with um, nuclear warheads. Um, and um, on that same radar for about a nanosecond um, is a little drone that's like got a water pistol in it, you know. Um, and that's what it felt like. I mean, you know, it was just we were we were just gone in a minute. It just didn't perform. If it makes you feel any better, I saw this theatrically. <laughs> well, so you were one of them. Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, uh, like I said, there were those who you know loved it, got it, would have loved to see more, you know. But it was just you know talk about preaching in the choir. We just it was our own universe of people at that point, and it wasn't enough to sustain a commercial hit. So uh, I'm happy that you were one of them. And so you said it was almost instantly a cult movie. So obviously this has grown over the years. I think that the release of it on Blu-ray just a few months ago was a pretty big deal. I remember reading about that in quite a few outlets. How does that make you feel now that after all these years, it's, I don't know if it's necessarily getting its due, but it definitely seems to have had this great life to it after all this time. Yeah, well, that's what happened. In other words, you you know, we've been, it's, it's always painful to have to talk about, you know, how it essentially failed. It was a commercial failure, and there's no two ways about it. And again, we, you know, it, many fans know this, but I guess it's worth at least mentioning that a big read when I, when I say that, you know, it was this little drone up against all these uh, nuclear ballistic missiles. Those ballistic missiles were Lethal Weapon, Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones Batman, Honey, I Shrunk the Kid, the, uh, Do the Right... Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Do the Right Thing. I might be leaving one or two others out. They were all released at the same time that we were. It was like the summer of blockbusters. It was... It was of course... We're, well, no, I don't even know if we're like that now. I guess we are to some degree, but, you know, these $150 million movies, I guess there's, you know, at that point, you would have five, six, seven, you know, giant movies coming out all at once, regardless of now. That's what, that's what That was then, and we just got killed by, we couldn't compete in that marketplace. And so, yeah, um, what, you know, it was it was painful for many years, essentially, you know, you put your heart and soul into something. We were very happy with the way it came out. Um, we really felt like it it was a, just a good little movie, and it really, we captured the essence of the comedy that we wrote and captured his vision, Al's vision. And um, But it was just painful, and we were almost in a, it's probably not wrong to say that we were uh, in a state of denial for... Uh, for a number of years where it's just like, you know, it's like kind of a deer in headlights. Like, what just happened there? I mean, the way when Al was talking, talking about this, it was literally like the classic Hollywood thing where he'd be walking through the halls at Orion at the studio. And I'm talking literally now, um, you know, doing that just before the movie came out and everybody had such high hopes for it because it tested so well. And they were seeing him as the, as the new Woody Allen. And that's how they were treating him. And so he was like this, he'd become like this newly, you know, anointed royalty almost before the movie even came out by the studio. And when the movie didn't perform, you know, it was like the next day he was like persona non grata. It's not like people were mean to him, but 
but it's a it's certainly almost a version of meanness when you think about it to go from this sort of exalted state which by the way he was you know it was all like that that's in itself a kind of darren headlights you know situation where you know you we're still just kids at that point essentially and now we're being touted as like the next big thing and you know we tried to take that with as much of a rock of salt as we could but still you know that it, it went from that to being persona non grata overnight when the movie didn't perform and so we did it you know it was it was kind of devastating i mean it's not unfair to use that word really because we it we just became from all this anticipation and we even allowed ourselves a certain amount of expectation based on again the test scores and how everybody seemed to really love it that it was a giant crash you know and so um you know it would be years later where you know i would say probably maybe it probably started about 15 years ago, 10 years ago, somewhere between there, where people like you who saw it in the film had grown up, they were now adults, they now had jobs, many of them in, enter- in the entertainment world. And actually, many people would say, you know, one of the big reasons I got into entertainment was because of UHF. And it would be like sort of mind-boggling. It's like, what? I mean, like we knew, again, we loved the movie. We were devastated by its failure commercially. But it just started rearing its head where, like, all these people out of, were just, you know, uh, you know, just really the influence that the movie had on them was unexpected and incredible, really, for us to experience. And, I mean, you mentioned the Blu-ray. When the DVD came out of UHF, it was a top 10 DVD, and that was, and top, by top 10, I mean... You know, that's, you know, the the release of all DVDs, meaning there were lots of current movies being released that week um, in the DVD chain. And we were sort of, you know, this oldie but goodie already considered a cult classic. And we were like in the top 10. Uh, so clearly it, it, it had a life of its own that we weren't as aware of over the years. And then it became really evident as I say as, as as its audience grew up became different kinds of professionals we became it became so it, it was so often told to us just to our face you know like what an impact the movie had on them so it's been unbelievably you know gratifying at this point to yes the point where now with the Blu-rays released and and, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like this little polished jewel that kind of got lost in the, you know, in the setting of the ring with all these diamonds in it, um, which again, were all these other movies that were released at the same time. But now it's sort of like, it, but that jewel was still its own perfect little polished jewel, if I can almost be so bold to say that. And it's maintained that over the years. There's no, nothing's changed about it. So when we do, you know, when screenings are done and they're done, as you know, all the time, and sometimes, we'll, you know, he and I or just he will, or just me, we'll do Q&A afterwards. And, you know, it's it holds up. That little universe that we created, it holds up. And, yes, it's that life that has, that, that came, that was created and has sustained all these years, and it's wonderfully rewarding, yeah. Was there any other sort of fallout when it came to this movie not performing as well as people thought it would? 
I don't think so, but, but you know, what else do you want? You know, I mean, it, meaning it's like he was going to be a movie star. I was going to be a big movie director. You figured that one out, right? In other words, you know, you, you think you've scaled the mountaintop. You, well, you think you're about to get there. You think, you you know, you just, again, you, you can't help almost for buying into the hype because it was so heavy around us. And then, the you, you know, the rug is just completely pulled out from under you. Completely, right? I mean, so how much worse can it be? I don't know. I mean, I guess I could think of other things that were, you know, but I mean, you know, he, the point is it certainly it affected Al in his, his primary role as a, as a musical recording artist, only in that he took a little bit of time to lick his wounds. We both did. But him especially because it was, he was a visionary of that film. And so, you know, it, that, it took a while for him to just kind of heal and almost, it was like, a, it was really like without trying to be overly dramatic. I mean, it was like a period of grieving, you know, in a way where like you create this magnificent life and then it just like dies in front of your eyes. It's like, you know, again, commercially, that effect is pretty traumatic and pretty profound and I guess if I tried hard enough, I could think of other effects that it had, but and maybe the only other effect that I can think of is that it took him a minute to kind of get over it and then get on with the, with the work of being Weird Al, the, the musical comedy you know, genius recording artist that he was. And he obviously bounced back with every bit of creativity that he always had. And, you know, the, the, the rest is, uh, of his career is history, you know. Now, you said that you are working on a script. What else are you working on these days? I am working on a script, which actually is nothing to do with him. Um, it's kind of a, almost like a bucket project, a bucket list project for me, if I could ever get it finished. And uh, it's kind of like this ironic and somewhat frustrating thing for me in that he just keeps me so busy as a manager. And, and it's my primary function. It's my role. It's my job, you know. And I take this that job incredibly seriously, and you know it's it it is so encompassing because he is so many things, as you know, he's a recording artist, he's you know he is an actor, he is his own director now in his own light, he's a producer. He, he wears every hat imaginable, right? He's a voiceover artist. he's uh, you know there's so uh, and you know one of 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 growing acclaim actually in that area. Um, that he's doing with so much in terms of animated television. You know, he keeps me just so busy that I just don't have time to... I haven't had time. I'm about halfway done with this script. So maybe I'll get a chance to finish it. So, you know, it probably sounds like a complaint, but more than anything, it's, you know, there's the enjoyment, the pure enjoyment and the gratitude. And I guess really more than anything, the um, how gratifying it is after... 30 year, thirty plus years that he has become the artist that, you know, and, and not, I shouldn't even say that because he was always that artist, that he has become the commercial success by having his, you know, the first number one album, not only for him, but the first number one comedy album in over 50 years, the first comedy album ever to debut at number one in Billboard charts in, in history there's a certain stratosphere that he now lives in that is long overdue, but is, is so welcomed and uh, is really gratifying. 
And so, you know, I've been busier than ever. I've just, uh, as a manager, it's, it's incredibly gratifying, obviously. And, and then you can imagine the kind of calls and offers that we are fielding now. Uh, we've always had a tremendous amount of luck and, and good fortune in terms of the things not only we've created and gone out and sold, but things that have come our way, which have always kept me busy anyway. Um, um, as a primary function, but now you can only imagine, you know, based on, you know, he's having the biggest, he's right now in the big, in the middle of the biggest tour of his career. It's a five month tour. It's worldwide. And, you know, we've sold out most of our shows, uh, you know, here in North America, we sold, we're, we will have sold out pretty much all the shows over in Europe that we're about to do. And we're playing with Australia and New Zealand later. And it's just, you know, he's at a level that's just incredibly gratifying. So again, that translates to me as a manager, just, just being unbelievably busy and I'm happy for it. It's a little frustrating because it is that part of me. I like to stretch out creatively and it, you know, I get to do that from a deal-making level and from a strategic level, and that's always fun for me. I don't ever want to, you know, downplay that. But, um, yeah, it doesn't give me the time, I guess, that uh, there's just so many hours in the day, you know. So, uh, you know, it's kind of like that. It sounds like a good problem to have. It's a great problem to have. <laughs> it's the best problem to have, right? Jay, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real treat for me to talk to you. Well, thank you. It's, um, I hope I haven't, you know, I, I'm usually the guy, I'm like the Wizard of Guy and Wizard of Oz, like the guy behind the curtain so much of the time. And um, sometimes I find myself um, uh, giving pretty long answers to pretty short questions, and I hope I didn't overdo it there. This is the kind of stuff that I live for, so this was perfect for me. All right. Well, thanks. I appreciate um uh, the fact that you were one of uh, the uh, the select uh, group that saw UHF uh, when it first came into theaters and and uh, appreciate the conversation. Next week on U62, he's back, and this time he's mad. Gandhi too. No more Mr. Passive Resistance. He's out to kick some butt. This is one bad mother you don't want to mess with. Don't move, slingball. He's a one-man wrecking crew. But he also knows how to party. Give me a stick, medium rare. There's only one law. His law. Gandhi 2. All right, we're back and we were talking about UHF. So we did talk a little bit about the way that this film was received. And yeah, people just didn't like this. And I, I don't understand why. I mean, it was savaged by critics. Like, I, I love on the audio commentary that Weird Al actually reads some of the, the comments. And uh, people weren't very happy at all with this movie. And I don't understand why people hated it as much as they did. Was it that Twinkie Wiener sandwich that did it to people? My guess would be that it's weird to think that it's a, a clean sense of humor. But, I mean, it's in all ages. It, it's It's basically the mad magazine audience getting to go see a movie. And I think maybe when a lot of people 
grow up, Mad Magazine is this thing from their past that they don't want to admit that they liked, or maybe they didn't like, maybe they were that uncool. So maybe it was just something they didn't want to let themselves like this movie. And I will admit, I mean, it's, it isn't for everybody. Some of the, that humor is, is pretty groan worthy, but I'm sure each joke that I think falls flat, there's probably an eight year old out there that thinks it's the funniest thing in the world. So the wrong people reviewed the film. I don't care how old I am, but the supplies joke will never <laughs> not make me laugh. <laughs> yeah, you see it coming after all these years, and it's still funny. Oh, yeah. I mean, they telegraph some of those jokes so far ahead, but it just – it works, man. So many of them work. And Getty Watanabe's uh, stupid – you're so stupid. Uh, I, I howl every single time. He's so funny with that. The one moment that, unfortunately, they really weren't able to kind of finish, you know, they actually had uh, Trinidad Silva die during the making of the film, was killed by a drunk driver, and he shows up just kind of randomly in that whole Raul's Wild Kingdom skit, and they just let it play. And I kind of appreciate that they still keep this bit in there. It really is very not tied to anything. And they even have that joke about, you know, where'd you get this guy? I thought you knew him, but that whole bit in there just works for me so well. I mean, I still talk about how turtles are nature section cups, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I do wish that, uh, there was a lot more of the Kipper kids. Yes. (laughs) You know, he got the Kipper kids, use them more. But I know in the deleted scenes, they, they show a little bit more of the act that they did on the telethon. And I guess that's all they were. All they did was an act for the telethon. But uh, I wish he could have worked them in as characters. I am very surprised there are a lot of parallels between this and another movie that you like, Skiz, is Americathon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can see that. So the wrong people reviewed UHF. That's your your theory, Skiz? Yeah, that that's what I would say. How about you, you Cecil? Why do you think that uh, UHF wasn't more well-received, other than the, the things that we've pointed out so far, especially having the cards completely stacked against it when it came to other movies that were out at the same time? I think, in general, it just was a little too bizarre for most people, because it was like... How do you market it exactly? It's like, you know, I mean, Weird Al was fairly big at the time, but it was like, okay, here's this movie with Weird Al and he's doing crazy things. And I guess it just didn't really resonate with people. It wasn't enough to get them out, you know, to go see it. I have a feeling that a lot of kids probably wanted to go see it in the theater, but maybe their parents, you know, didn't pay attention to the rating and just thought that, uh, oh, this is going to be, you know, toilet humor for 90 minutes. And I don't want to take my kid to see that. You know, it's meanwhile, it's like crass, but it's not dirty. You know, it's kind of like Al himself had said uh, the George Newman character was based off of Alfred E. Newman uh, from Mad Magazine. He's always kind of got his. Uh, he owes a lot of his sense of humor to Mad Magazine. So I think that, uh, you know, and Mad is that like crude but not dirty. And I think that people were kind of expecting more, you know, uh, dirty and not just kind of, uh, you know, a little bit edgy but not that dirty. So, and it's weird, you know, sometimes there's always things that come out that just stun where you're like, oh, this movie's going to be great. And then it comes out and the movie's really good. But for whatever reason, it just bombs. It just doesn't get people into the theater. And on a, on a little tiny side note, um, 
because we keep bringing up the Twinkie Wiener sandwich, uh, I have some friends of mine, these guys that do a channel called Reckless Eating, and uh, I had dared them to eat the Twinkie Wiener sandwich. And so they did it. The only thing is they they slightly screwed it up. They did the Twinkie Wiener sandwich. So they put the Twinkie uh, or they put the the hot dog in between the Twinkie, Twinkie and they put the easy cheese on it. But they skipped the dunking it into coffee. The two of my buddies, they uh, the one guy, he ate about two bites and he tapped out. And the other guy, uh, he ended up eating like one and a half of them. <laughs> and he was like, this is actually delicious. <laughs> so you know kind of make your own oh and and al had said um because uh, he's gone vegan uh over the years and he has said that uh when he was doing uhf he wasn't but then in you know subsequent years he was and he says now he still makes twinkie wiener sandwiches although he makes them with vegan hot dogs which I thought was interesting, too, because I'm like, I guess Twinkies are also vegan. I wonder if that was when he, you know, kind of turned his whole life around, straightened his hair, quit eating meat, you know, got right with the Lord. The thing that kills me, well, I shouldn't say the thing that kills me, but I mean, if you look at Al, Al, like, what, what's Al now in his, like, mid to late 50s? Oh, geez. Probably, I yeah. I mean, and the dude really stopped aging at around 30. Like, yeah, he was born in 1959. So what what does that make him? Uh, 57. Uh, 57. Wow. wow. Yeah. And dude, seriously, like, does not look 57. Definitely not at all. And, uh, you know, the one thing that you brought up was uh, at the very beginning was how good his band is, which I don't think that anybody really talks about how good the band is and that they can do all these different styles, you know, parody these things so well. And then the whole idea of Al just really being this chameleon when it comes to so many of these different looks that he could do. You know, of course, a lot of it is wigs and makeup and everything, but he just does a fantastic job when it comes to really going all out to try to capture that or at least bring that flavor of things to it. I mean, if you look at even way back with like the Ricky video and stuff, just how different he looked versus how he normally looks or looked at the time with the big, you know, kind of curly hair and everything. And then looking at white and nerdy, you know, we're again, totally different looking guy. And he just does such a great job of that. I, I saw him uh, live couple times i was amazed at the dedication like he could go out there and just play these songs and that would be fine but the dedication to all the costume changes and the theatrics and everything it's you know he could get away without doing that but he does it anyway i mean he's he's definitely loves his fans I absolutely agree with that because there's so many bands that will get out there and they'll just play you know, there's no theatrics, no nothing. You pay an exorbitant amount of money and you just go and see the band. Whereas Al puts on a show like you feel like you're getting your money's worth because he gets out there and does all the costume changes. And there's like they you know, the, the songs are almost like mini plays a lot of times. And it's just that kind of dedication is so rare anymore. Well, and to make a song that in a few minutes time can be can tell such a great story and be so much better than the phantom menace i mean the song of <laughs> the saga begins is you know encapsulates in just a few minutes 
the everything that happens in the damn plot of the Phantom Menace, and you don't have to see that horrible movie. And it, it, I just I commend him that that song is so much better than the film. But that song made me understand what the film was about. Yeah, <laughs> he's doing everybody a favor, and and that he can do a song like that and be able to twist those lyrics around. And now I can never hear the Don McLean song without thinking, you know, maybe Vader someday later. And he, he does a terrific job. The same with, uh, his, his Yoda parody of, of the kinks Lola. Same thing. Mm -hmm. I can't hear the kinks version without hearing the weird alley lyrics. There's a lot of songs that I will, if I hear the regular version of the song, I'll start to think of like the polka polkas on 45 type version of it. And that'll just take over in my mind. And it's just, you know, Hey Joe, where are you going with that gun in your hand? You know, just all the way. <laughs> going to shoot my old lady. <laughs> <laughs> Called her messing around with another man. Old lady. <laughs> <laughs> if people haven't seen UHF and God forgive you, if you haven't, I still highly recommend that movie. I would say if you haven't seen it and you find it too cringeworthy in the first 10 minutes, just give it another 10 minutes and it'll get into it. I still love this film. I was still quoting lines along with it. I mean, just stupid jokes, stupid, stupid jokes that stupid bit of uh, Stanley and George when he's like, you know, um, what's the matter, George? You don't want to know. Why did I ask? I mean, God, so good. <laughs> any any closing thoughts, fellas? UHF two. I am so on board with the UHF two. Uh, it like I think that it's tough because it, being a movie that's coming out so much later. I mean, the fans want it. But would it really work? And are there enough fans to really justify it? I mean, I would love for them to try to do it and to somehow make it work like in this day and age. It's just uh, it's it's a tough sell. Um, I would much rather them do a sequel. I'm sure someone somewhere is trying to figure out how to remake it and just know it, it won't work. If they were to somehow figure out a way to do a V8 or a UHF two, I know uh, Weird Al on one of his like Comic Con appearances or something, people were asking about it, and he had said he had like some ideas, but it's like it is really hard to kind of come up with something like that. I would love for them to take a chance and do it, but you know, uh, I think that at this stage of the game, Al is just content with uh, continuing to tour and uh, not really worry. I mean, he got the the you know bucket list of doing a movie out of the way relatively early so you know he doesn't really feel the need to go back and do it again it it would be nice to see him maybe not a sequel to UHF but just another vehicle for him because i think he's way more successful now than he was then like i think he's more like critics like him more now and i think he's more daring i mean uh, you know his the all the music videos he directed and all the cameos he's done in other films yeah, I think it's time for him to like be the star of another feature. And I was trying to think of what the last thing was that I saw him in, and it was Todd Rohal's Uncle Kent 2. Uh, if you haven't seen it, very trippy, funny movie starring Kent Osborne. Weird Al has a very brief cameo in it that is one of the funniest moments of the film. And it just made me think, wow, I actually know people that made a movie that Weird Al is in. I hope they make another movie that Weird Al is in. <laughs> 
Well, Cecil, to your point, I mean, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome was 1985, so that was 30 years between two Mad Max films, so why not 30 years between two UHF films? Absolutely, and I would probably be more excited to see uh, UHF 2 than I was to see Fury Road. Where did you find this guy? Me? I thought you hired him. And it's a shame we won't get Billy Barty back. Just every time I see Billy Barty, how can you not just like him? So many, so many likable characters. And God, can you imagine if they brought back Victoria Jackson and Michael Richards? (laughs) I think I think Michael Richards would probably be a little bit more well received than Victoria Jackson would, because I think Michael Richards just kind of like went he kind of went nuts that one time. But really, he's like. I don't want to say redeemed himself, but like people have kind of moved on from that. Whereas like right. uh, Victoria Jackson is kind of stuck in the, uh, you know, she's rediscovered Jesus and is now just like nuts. Well, she could be the, uh, the vindictive ex-wife that's trying to get the station in the, uh, in the divorce. Ooh, oh, very nice. Yeah, that could really work. Million dollar idea right there, Skiz. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they could bring, uh, Fran, uh, bring Drescher. Fran Drescher back. You know, I mean, Fran Drescher is another one. She looks pretty much the same, really. <laughs> Just poof her hair up and give her, you know, like she's the voice is the same. I can see her coming back. You know, have her be like, uh, you know, ex- an executive in charge or something. Well, exactly. She could be management. She, that's what she wanted to be the whole time. Yeah. Oh, that would be perfect. Because that was, yeah. She kept wanting to move up. She didn't want to be, uh, you know, just uh, the the um, camera girl the whole time. And the horrible secretary can barely type. I know, because because the, the nails. Uh, I think she would come back, except she's too busy shooting Doctor Detroit too. Ah, yes. (laughs) All right, fellas, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Francis Ford Coppola presents Apocalypse Now with Marlon Brando, Robert Duval, Martin Sheen. Apocalypse Now, all over London from Sunday and in the West End now. Certificate X. Experience Apocalypse Now. And you will never need to go to war. That's right. Next week, I am heading down the river with Rich Edwards and Paul Zimmerman. Don't worry, though. We won't get out of the boat. Before we go, I want to thank this week's guest co-host, Cecil and Skiz. Cecil, what have you been up to lately, sir? Uh, I have been uh, up to making videos for the Escapist uh, magazine.com as well as my YouTube channel. And... Um, just uh, working, uh, working a lot on <laughs> trying trying to make it on this crazy internet thing. Where can folks go to find those videos? Uh, you can find them on escapistmagazine.com as well as goodbadflix.com. If you don't like going to, uh, you know, somebody else's website, there are some people who just like going straight to YouTube. So you can also find my stuff right on YouTube under Good Bad Flicks. And I'm also on all your favorite uh, social media platforms. Very cool, and I'll be sure to link over to all those things from our website, projection-booth.com. And how about you, Skiz? What's going on with all your projects? Oh, man, let's see. I've just about wrapped shooting Joe Trapea's new documentary, Sickies Making Films, which is all about the uh, censor boards that that kept people from seeing movies in their uh, complete form. I'm still editing my documentary, Ice Pick to the Moon, about Reverend Fred Lane 
And I joined a new band about a month ago that plays out more than all my other bands combined. So if you live on the East Coast, you're more likely to see me in your town uh, now with this new band, The Stents. They're, they're not a new band. They were actually one of my favorite bands. But now I'm, I'm the new Stent, and uh, we're coming to your town. When are you going to play Detroit? I don't know. Sooner or later. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Where can people keep up with you, Skiz? Uh, I'm skiz.net, S-K-I-Z-Z dot N-E-T. Well, thank you again, guys, for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Come on by the website, projection-boot.com, for links over to our Patreon, where you can help support the show. Only you can help the Projection Booth take over the world. Some sense 
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.